It's March 31st, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. How many steps does it take to save a life? While we're stepping, if you're a long-distance runner, a marathon runner, do you have a higher risk of osteoarthritis? And lastly, speaking of osteoarthritis, would you believe that itching causes osteoarthritis? Oh, yeah. All of these this week on the podcast. Let's begin with a bevy of abstracts this week and reports dealing in and about the area of psoriasis. Uh, if you followed me for a while, you know my pet peeve is vitamin D. Yeah, everyone should be on vitamin D. I'm on vitamin D. Am I crazy about it? Not really. It has immune benefits, bone benefits, might could help lupus, but honestly, vitamin D is low in everything, and when you give vitamin D, it doesn't treat anything. Well, I found some evidence of that again this week. It's a JAMA Dermatology article. Um, it's a 122-patient trial of mild psoriasis patients. They only had a POSI score of 3, it was sort of like ranging from 2 to 5. And they, uh, this is an, a Nordic uh, region where, you know, not a lot of sunlight. And the vitamin D levels on those that entered the trial was less than 15. And they were randomized to either receive placebo or vitamin D, 20,000 units a week. They followed them for four months. And yes, vitamin D levels did rise significantly up to 30 nanograms per ml in those that were treated with vitamin D and not so much in those who didn't get it. But when you looked at what happened to their POSI scores uh, and other measures of outcome in these psoriasis trials, no difference, no change. You could say it's underpowered. You could say it's not. Maybe you need to see it change with more severe disease. But again, no change in POSI, MD Global, or DLQI, the quality of the uh, uh, the quality of life instrument used in psoriasis trials. Again, I take your vitamin D and let's not worry too much about it. Almost 200 patients with psoriasis were treated with methotrexate monotherapy. Question is, does that really work? You know, most dermatologists are not wild about using it. A lot of rheumatologists are not wild about using methotrexate. Anyway, this particular cohort study looked at survival of methotrexate as a measure of its efficacy and safety. Um, and at one year, half of them still on methotrexate. At two years, two thirds of them are off methotrexate, only 36% are on. At five years, it's down to 29%. The average duration of methotrexate therapy was 10 months. And they discontinued for, as you would guess, mostly adverse events, mostly GI, um, but a, uh, that was 39%. Um, but 38% because it was ineffective, uh, and in 12% because you achieved remission on methotrexate, remission of their psoriasis. So maybe that, I think it's a very realistic kind of uh, set of data there. Durability was best in the elderly and those that were taking substantially high doses, greater than 15 milligrams per week. Found another small study from India, interesting head-to-head -head trial of methotrexate versus apremolast in patients with psoriatic arthritis. 31 patients were enrolled, 15 on a primalast, 16 on methotrexate. Methotrexate group 
had more enthesitis, more dactylitis. The average number of joints in this trial was two to three. Um, I think that's two to three swollen joints. And um, the week 24 responses were not significantly different between the groups. But realistically, this is a low number, and the numbers favored methotrexate for the primary endpoint, which was a major C-DAPSA score, 37% versus 20%. 37 with methotrexate, 20 with the apremolast. Uh, ACR 20 was also better with methotrexate, 56% versus 47%. There was no difference in adverse events. So is this a negative trial or a suggestion of a positive trial? Hard to know when the numbers are that small. Kudos for doing the study. Uh, wish you had done more patients. Um, bimikizumab, the IL-17 inhibitor, is probably going to be approved sometime soon for psoriasis in the United States. As you know, it's a monoclonal antibody that inhibits both uh, IL-17 uh, A and H. It's a, a A and F, excuse me. It's a dual inhibitor. Um, it looks good in psoriasis trials, but it's also being tested in other conditions. I have a study here, hydroiditis suppurativa. In fact, two fairly good-sized phase two trials, the BHERD, one and two, that's B-E and HERD, H-E-A-R-D, number one and number two trials, basically showed the primary endpoint, which was a um, composite measure of 50% reduction in, you know, the lesions of, of, of uh, HS uh, and scarring. Uh, again, a 50% or greater response was seen in roughly 50% in those two trials versus about 30% in placebo. Uh, at week 48, 75% of those people maintained the responses. At week 48, there was a uh, half the patients had received a 75% uh, reduction in their hydradenitis response score. So this is encouraging data. I would expect this data with a little bit more push to actually get um, future FDA approval. There was a study done in France on my, one of my to favorite topics, difficult to treat RA, D2TRA, as you know. ULAR has a, a, a formal definition, and now you're going to see a number of good trials that will tell you maybe what the insight is, what you need to be doing, what you forgot to do when, when you encounter these patients. Uh, as I reviewed here before, there's about a 10% incidence of D2TRA in most uh, rheumatology practices. In this single center study of 320 patients, they found 76, which is a 24% um, incidence of uh, D2TRA as defined by the ULAR criteria. They found that D2TRA was more likely in lower socioeconomic groups, in rheumatoid factor individuals, those who had interstitial lung disease and those with higher DAS 28 CRP scores. Um, Again, uh, these, these were the patients who were also more likely to respond to rituximab and JAK inhibitors. So when you have these patients, they fit that profile. When you have these patients, have you yet considered the use of rituximab and JAK inhibitors? I don't think this trial was designed to answer that question about what's the best therapy. I think this was really all about looking at the incidence, which is higher than I would have expected, and what the associations were. These are basically all associations with more severe disease, is it not? Another study was done looking at lung abnormalities in early RA, 30 consecutive 
of seropositive early RA patients were assessed for lung abnormalities, and by multiple measures, 60% had pulmonary abnormalities and, and a, you know, a range of different pulmonary diagnoses. Bottom line was if you had pulmonary abnormalities in further testing, they showed that this was associated with uh, the presence of neutrophil activation markers, uh, inflammation uh, indices, and seropositivity. This is important because there is a theory that says that early RA may very well have its origins in the lung, meaning that early lung inflammation becomes one of the setups for um, the evolution from just being uh, an at-risk person by genetics to then developing autoimmunity and whatnot. So uh, again, the lung may very well be an early player in those patients who will progress from at-risk RA to actually developing RA. And this kind of data supports that. I found this study really interesting and really bizarre. It's almost a 400-patient study of patients with neuropsychiatric SLE. I want to say this is from uh, Japan. Um, and the diagnosis was not in question here. What they did was they treated them differently. Uh, and they had two eras, eras as, to, as to how they treated the patients. Uh, and the patients were, half of them were treated with intrathecal methotrexate plus intrathecal dexamethasone, 10 milligrams. Um, and uh, compared to those who only received IV pulse steroids at another era. The bottom line is that the, uh, there was a slightly greater degree of lupus activity in the intrathecal methotrexate decadron group, sleet eyes of 17 versus 14 in the pulse steroid group. Um, overall, pulse steroids um, were used um, in both groups, right? Um, but the overall, the intrathecal methotrexate group had better survival and a greater uh, evidence of neuropsychiatric lupus remission. And that was significant at P0.04. Um, the, this therapy seemed to work best in those who had high CSF proteins and those who had seizures as an early manifestation. I, um, I've never seen this done before. I didn't know anybody was doing this. I don't know if I would do this. I don't use, uh, you know, um, intrathecal injections to manage these patients, but you know what we do use, which is basically pulse steroids or high dose steroids really isn't all that effective. Um, it works in, you know, my experience, a third of patients, the third, you, you shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know, maybe. And over time they got better. So you said it was the, it was your steroids. And there's a third where clearly it doesn't work. And then you wonder, do you have the right diagnosis and right etiology? This is a difficult group, but this kind of data, which I would say is highly exploratory, should lead to someone doing maybe a better trial. A large study of gout patients um, and the effects of uh, urate-lowering therapy is looked at. 28,000 patients were looked at their fracture risk based on whether or not they achieved treat-target target when they were on urate-lowering therapy. So the idea was that if you achieve target on ULT, your five-year risk of fracture was 0.5%. What if you didn't achieve target? your risk was 0.8%. That is basically a 33% lowering of risk that was significant 
in this cohort analysis. NHANES, as you know, is a survey done nationwide at different periods during, um, uh, over the last 20 years. They measure a lot of different things and they have long-term outcome data. In this uh, NHANES uh, population-based study of U.S. adults over 3,100, um, they looked at those who are on, um, who used accelerometers, pedometers, starting in 2005. And then they jumped ahead to see what the mortality statistic was in 2019, 14 years later. Uh, when they compared uh, walkers to non-walkers, non-walkers taking less than 8,000 steps, the mortality was significantly lower in people who walked greater than 8,000 steps a day for one or two days. That was a 15% lowering. That was significant. If they walked more than 8,000 steps per day, three to seven days per week, it was a little bit higher at 16.5% lower. Walking works. I mean, the results here are modest, but clearly there's a, a good reason to recommend walking, and at least this particular uh, threshold of 8,000 steps a day seems to provide cardiovascular protection. Uh, an analysis of marathon runners looked at over 3,800 marathon runners who ran the 2019 and the 2021 Chicago Marathon, and they surveyed these individuals to look at um, outcomes and who developed what. Overall, in this uh, survey, uh, the risk of developing hip and knee arthritis was low at 7.3%. Having uh, um, hip or knee OA was correlated with a few factors, things you would, you would have expected. Prior injury or surgery in the hip or knee, being older, a family history of osteoarthritis, and lastly, BMI, meaning weight. What was not correlated was the number of marathons, um, the actual weekly or annual mileage that they ran, and the style of running did not have any impact on future development of osteoarthritis. This is what we know. If, you're, if you run with normal mechanics, there's no good reason you should develop osteoarthritis. doesn't matter how long, how frequent, whatever. Normal mechanics and normal body habitus you're at incredibly low risk for future osteoarthritis. Multiple studies have shown that. Uh, another cohort analysis looked at uh, autoimmune rheumatic disease flares uh, in patients receiving COVID, COVID vaccination. The bottom line is about 10% of patients flare. And it was particularly higher if you had comorbidities, um, if you had autoimmune disease, and if you had mental health disorders. Oh, also... It was a little bit higher with the Moderna vaccine compared to the others. What kind of flare? It's not like they're de developing, you know, big time flares. It's mainly arthritis, 62%, fatigue, 59%. So again, we see this in practice. Um, and is that something you see uh, in people who are sicker with autoimmune disease and mental health? That's what they came up with. Lastly, an interesting report this this. Uh, last week on atopic disease increases the risk of osteoarthritis. This was a study of um, uh, claims analysis of over 17,000 patients with atopy, meaning they either had asthma or atopic dermatitis. And they compared them one to 10 or 10 to one with those who did, had no evidence of atopic disease. The incidence rate for uh, osteoarthritis in those with atopic disease was 
almost 27 cases per 1,000 patient years. But if you did not have atopic disease or atopy, it was 19 per 1,000 patient years. That's a 58% increased risk if you have atopic disease. This is curious. I mean, it seems like a solid number. The research seems solid. Um, if you had both asthma and atopic dermatitis, it went from a odds ratio of 1.58 to 2.51, even higher, sort of validating the results. Moreover, they looked at another independent data set at an academic center called the STAR database and showed a 42% increased risk if you had atopic disease. This calls into question the potential um, A, causative role, and B, future therapeutic intervention that targets mast cells or these, the allergic cytokines, IL-4, IL-5, IL-9, there's a few of them, in treating osteoarthritis. This hasn't really been done in the past, but you know there are some of us who are rheumatologists who are also immunologists, allergists and immunologists. You want to get one of those guys really excited, start talking mast cells to them. They get all, all happy um, thinking about, you know, therapies to treat mast cells. Mast cells are pretty much um, ignored in the pathogenesis of even inflammatory disorders like RA. And there's a biology that would support um, their targeting. Hopefully we'll see more of that in the future. Lastly, I want to call attention to um, the month of April that's coming up. Uh, starting Monday, April 3rd, we have a new campaign and it's called Women in Rheumatology, The X Factor. Uh, I've long been interested in this topic that no one is really paying attention to. There are clear-cut issues here about women in rheumatology not really doing as well as they probably should, not getting the recognition they should. Um, this uh, takes the form of a lot of different um, shortcomings that with employment, with uh, leadership, with the, being department chairs, heading up clinical trials, um, authorship in papers, being on committees. Um, you know, we have a workforce um, problem in rheumatology. And right now and in the future, it's going to be made up by mostly women. There are more women going into rheumatology than ever before. Um, and this is an, a, a, something that needs to be dealt with. So I've asked Drs. Catherine Dow and Rachel Tate to co-edit the content development for this month. We're going to be rolling out a lot of feature blogs from uh, women leaders in rheumatology that will hope, hopefully tell you their story, uh, educate and uh, excite you about this topic that we're excited about. Every Tuesday night, we'll be doing Tuesday night rheumatology webinars that will discuss a number of different topics, including negotiating contracts, um, making the choice between academic or private practice, balancing career and home life. And lastly, we're going to have a town hall meeting at the end of the month on Tuesday night to really go over what our agenda and priorities are going forward and how we might best deal with those going forward. Hope you'll enjoy this upcoming campaign. I know that we've been really excited about the work that's been done so far. Tune in next week. Take care.